to the Global Recon Podcast. Here are your hosts, John from Global Recon and Mike from Fieldcraft LLC, giving you the matter of facts. Globalrecon.net, fieldcraftsurvival.com. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with Mike Glover of Fieldcraft. And today we have uh, Vietnam era Green Beret Mike Stahl back on the show. And we have an interesting episode as we're going to talk about some of the the differences and the contrast from the way things were in special forces during those days and the way things are in the modern era of special operations or special forces. So I'm going to hand it over to Mike and he's going to get a little more into that for you guys. Hey guys, it's Mike from Philcraft. Hey, sorry I missed last episode. I was out sick with the flu. So I'm glad to be back on and glad to have a former Green Beret medically retired uh, Sergeant First Class Mike Stahl. Um, just just to reminder to everybody who's tuning in, if you guys can, when you guys uh, log on to iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever, however you get to us on the podcast, uh, we appreciate the feedback that we get from you guys. So if you guys can go on and, and leave a review, it, that would be great. Uh, that keeps us uh, on the air, keeps us in the number one slot in government. And then just gives us access to more ears to to spread uh, the good stories of of prior vets and uh, prior first responders. So it keeps us going. We'd appreciate it if you go on there, and then uh, you can find that uh, those links on on John's uh, Global Recon, uh, which will hi- or Global Recon website, which will highlight at the end of the show, or my website as well, which will uh, highlight and in the notes at the end. Uh, right now, we're going to go ahead and uh, talk to Mike Stahl, and and like John said. Uh, there's a lot of differences in special forces from or Mike Stahl's era in the during the Vietnam era and today with special operations and special forces, specifically the Army. It, it's advanced a lot since the 70s, but um, the the task org, the the structure and organizations, the MOS and job titles, um, all the way through how they conducted operations is different in a lot of ways. Um, some some for the you know some has has pros and some has cons on on the way they they did uh, operations back then. But we'll get some good insight from Mike Stahl today. Mike, are you you on the air? Yes, I am, Mike. <clears throat> uh, it's, hey, it's it's good to have you back on. And sorry, I missed last last episode. I had some serious um, yuck mouth. I had some serious flu going on. But uh, it's good it's good to be on the air with you. Uh, nice to meet you finally, Mike. Yeah, thank you. Hey, so let's let's jump into it. And first of all, and I don't think we t- we covered this that, uh, last episode with you, but can you give us uh, some background information on on how you even got to the point? Because uh, you know we talked offline about this, but you joined the army just like me when you were seventeen years old, and that that yep. was young. That's young for any era. And how did you get to the point where you decided you wanted to join the army, and why? And then what MOS or what job title did you go into? prior to going into Special Forces? Well, well, Mike, you know, uh, guys of my era were brought up watching television, World War II, you know, the really the glorification of warfare. And uh, I think a lot of us were pretty gung-ho from the uh, uh, well, uh, victory at sea, the big picture, platoon, uh, various uh, television shows back then. Uh, I wanted to go into the Air Force when I was a kid, but my brother uh, went into the Army and fought in Korea with the 187th. And when he came home from Korea with his uh, khakis and his jump boots and looking sharp, I was about maybe six (laughs) or seven years old. It really made an impression on me. 
then got to be 17, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis down there uh, just south of me. Uh, I was living in Florida just south of the uh, MacDill Air Force Base, which was a SAC base. I had already dropped out of high school, and so I went and I listed airborne infantry. <laughs> That's, uh, the recruiter didn't tell me that at that time, you know, I could have enlisted for any job assignment, any overseas assignment. There were lots of enlistment options at the time. But I think it was the end of the month, so he wasn't really enthused, so he just let me enlist airborne infantry. Uh, at that time, I remember uh, in the recruiter's office seeing the posters up for Ranger or Special Forces and that sort of thing. Uh, I had no idea what Special Forces was beyond just rumor control. Uh, but I couldn't even think about Special Forces at that time because you had to be on your second enlistment. You had to be at least an E-5. Uh, you couldn't have, you couldn't wear glasses. You couldn't have any distinguishing marks or tattoos. So, uh, it was going to be, you know, a long time before I could even think about special forces. Oh, wow. Uh, so, so back, so like when you started out as an air, airborne infantryman, uh, they had, they already started prerequisites, pretty hard prerequisites prior to even going into special forces. Oh yeah. The requirements were very stringent, very stringent. Uh, of course, now you got to remember we were we were preparing to to fight the Russians in Eastern Europe, uh, so you know it was a whole different thing then. And you got to remember too that Special Forces wasn't really uh, brought up to speed until after the Bay of Pigs. It was when the CIA screwed up the uh, the invasion at the Bay of, Pig, Bay of Pigs. Uh, they got their timing wrong for the air support coming out of Central America. That's when. Uh, they decided that they were going to turn all military ops over to the military. And, of course, the Green Berets got that under under Kennedy. So when I enlisted, Special Forces was just, I don't know what was going on. <laughs> it was, it was wow. so secret, and nobody talked about it. There was no Barry Sadler's Ballad of the Green Beret or anything like that. What year, what year was this, Mike? 1962. 1962, wow. So, I, yeah, okay, I re- I recall reading a book uh, on the first couple stars that were issued to the CIA personnel that were killed, and one of them was an aviator who was shot down when I think his B fifty two or his it was a it was a a, a fighter um, that flew into Cuba and was shot down, and they lost uh, some some guys, uh-huh. and then that that became a debacle. And I remember so that was the time specifically when they turned over all military operation or, or military style operations over to the uh, Department of Defense? Right, because uh, before that, even in Southeast Asia, when we had the old MAG, you know, the Military Advisory and Assistance Group, we had MAG-V, we had MAG-Thailand, MAG-Philippines. Uh, the people at that time working with the Indig were CIA. They, they weren't military. And uh, so they turned all of those types of military operations over to the the army after the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Wow. I'm okay. So, in a course, but you know. So when you when you went through training, and uh, this is something that you know I don't even know about. When you went through training, was it the standard? Because I, you know, I went to Sand Hill, Fort Benning, Georgia, as an eleven Bravo, and then you know, obviously went to to Airborne School at the same uh-huh. location. Um, but did you go through Sand Hill at the same spot, and did you go through airborne training at at, at Benning, or was it at Bragg when you went through? Uh, well, I, I went through it at Benning. I uh, 
I went through basic training at Gordon. Uh, I couldn't pass the airborne physical uh, at the end of basic training. I was a 98-pound weakling when I enlisted. I was a band nerd, you know. So then I went through infantry AIT, and that's when I passed the physical. From there, I went down to Benning for jump school. Uh, when I was in jump school, they were looking for volunteers to go to, go to rigger school, so I ended up going up to Fort Lee and becoming a 43 Echo uh, parachute rigger for my first uh, enlistment. And uh, I wanted to go to Germany, so I volunteered to go to German language school. And they sent me to Arabic, <laughs> of course. And oh, wow. uh, of course, of course y- y- you got to understand that the, uh, that the languages at that time, you could tell what was going to be happening because that's where the languages that they were emphasizing. So uh, they sent me out there for, uh, for Arabic language training. And that's when through the Fort Ord Sport Parachute Club down the road from the language school, I met my special forces recruiter and another guy, Sergeant First Class Vince Orem from the first was doing some TDY there at work, at TDY work there at Ord. And they're the guys that, that pressured me into getting into special forces. That's, that's so, that's, that's pretty all right. I, I was, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm about an hour and a half right now from, from Fort Ord, but I was born in Fort Ord and my dad oh. was in the infantry in Fort Ord. Where, uh, that's, where is that? Oh, uh, he was in, in the eighties, the, the late seventies okay. and early eighties. Okay. But, uh, that's, that's interesting because it's right down the road. In fact, I just read an article in the news where they were trying to, uh, you know, that base is shut down, but they're trying to oh, turn yeah. it into like a, to resorts and neighborhoods and stuff. So, uh-huh. uh, that's, that's, that's some cool history that's that's tied between uh, you know me and you and, and that place. But yeah, yeah, so well, a couple of years ago, I got to drive out to California and I I drove by Old Fritchie Field where we used to skydive. <laughs> it was oh that's it was awesome. Kind of, yeah, it was kind of weird, you know, seeing it all shut down. Yeah, it, it, it's completely. It's almost like Fort Bragg, the old the old World War II barracks at Fort Bragg. It's everything's right. all shut down and pilling, and it looks like a a, a museum. Yeah. So, so when you went to, uh, so you were recruited for special forces, um, in language school, and you're going through uh, at the time Arabic language school, and yeah, correct? yeah, and and it, I I was recruited out of the Fort Ord Sport Parachute Club. I was very active in that. I was the president and the safety officer and stuff. And uh, uh, Gordon Mike McPherson came in to learn how to skydive, and he was the recruiter uh, on loan from the seventh. And he and I got along real well, and I think he saw some quality in me. Uh, and then, like I said, Vince Orem was jumping, and, and between the two of them, uh, they started pushing me pretty hard to volunteer. Again, I was happy being a parachute rigger. I, you know, I'd heard all of the old rumors about special forces and the bear pits and, and all this crap, and I thought, no, nah, that's not for me. But uh, both Mike and Vince kept talking to me and, and – uh, Got me to do the the testing and stuff. A lot of it already had passed. You had to have a you know passing score on the OCS entrance exam and that sort of thing. So a lot of my testing was already out of the way. That's interesting because you know it's it almost seems like the the standards back then were almost harder than the standards now. Because I yeah I I I vaguely remember it's been a, a long time, just like for you. But I just can't. I don't remember there being entry exams and, you know, a lot of aptitude was really based off your GT score, which is just a, you know, a, a sliver of your ASVAB uh, score when you come in the military. Oh, but God. other than that, the yeah, tests there was were, were just mind boggling. They were developed by the, I believe it was the Rand Corporation and they were oh, looking wow. for, 
you know, specific traits, that thinking out of the box type idea, you know, and, and I could give you some of the examples, but, you know, they were really tough just to, just to get approved to go to, to uh, Smoke Bomb Hill, and then when we got there, there was a lot more testing. Uh, what I've noticed is, you know, because I've kept up on this, I've got several videos about the Q course and, and what's happening in Special Forces, and, and from what, I, what it looks like today, they do a lot of the, the washing out right in the Q course. You know, it's, I, there was none of that when I went in. When I got to Fort Bragg, it was uh, pretty much like Plaster explains in his book. It was, you know, friendly guys. There was no harassment. It was just, you know, you just went to class and did your work. Uh, there was training. Not, none of that physical stuff like they have in the uh, the. What do they call it? The yeah, the qualifying course, where there's that two weeks of hell or whatever the heck yeah, is yeah. through today. Uh, we didn't have any of that, but also keep in mind we we you know we had serious needs for for boots on the ground in Vietnam. Now now so basically what you're saying is like in the beginning the screening was the was the way they they basically assessed and and recruited people cuz they got the right people from the get go so when you guys went to smoke bomb hill you guys were set up for training as opposed to a assessment and then weeding you guys out exactly yeah that's oh, wow. what it seems okay. like to me now so did you guys actually go through a like a a standard training course or or was it and what was it in specifically okay uh let, let me give you the outline Everybody went through phase one and phase two, and that was eight weeks in the beginning and eight weeks at the end. So the first eight weeks, phase one, since, you know, you got guys coming from all MOSs from all over the place, was basically basic training all over again. Just simple infantry stuff that we, you know, that an infantry guy might know, but somebody from supply might not anymore. So it was all map reading, just like going through basic again. Uh, Once we finished that, uh, we got to wear a beret with no flash on it. So that was, you know, that little reward they gave us for getting through the f- oh, first cool. eight weeks. Then you <laughs> went to your MOS training, which could be mine was, was uh, uh, let's see, two months two months of MOS training, 11F. Uh, of course, you know, the docs, they went down to Fort Sam for a year. And uh, combo, everybody went to their own places and did the th- their thing. And then in phase two, after the MOS training, uh, what they called phase two was was then putting us all together, and that's when we got the uh, insurgency, counterinsurgency, all the the SF stuff, you know, the special uh, training we needed, and uh, you know started to work together as teams. So uh, obviously, guys you started with wouldn't necessarily be with you in phase two because they went to different places in training, different lengths of training. So a total of two phases, and how long was those two phases together? Uh, well, it was uh, eight weeks, and then eight weeks at the end. And um, yeah, that's right, uh, two months. <laughs> I got to do my math. My full training for my MOS 11F was six months. Two phase, oh, wow. two two MOS, and two phase two. But now, when you look at special forces, they say you know the training is roughly two years. But that also includes language school. So if you're going to include my previous language school that was 47 weeks before i even started oh wow Which, yeah see, they, so they <clears throat> yeah and you know so, that you know. yeah so when when you guys went through did you guys have language training during the course for guys who weren't qualified 
No. Or, the, or no. Oh, lang- okay. language at that time was almost like applying for Halo or you know any other specialty training. Everybody eventually was going to get some language training someplace, but there was none of it in in our training. That was uh, our training was just specifically to you know to to learn our skills and and our MOS. Now, okay, so for guys and gals who are listening in, you know. Uh, the the eleven when you say eleven foxtrot like uh now like when I went through uh, basic training I was an eleven X ray which meant they can give me an any eleven series or any infantryman MOS and it was broken down as Bravo which is you know a light infantryman like, Charlie which is a a mortarman yeah uh, eleven Mike and uh, Hotel which are were heavy um, or up armored vehicles. Um, what is what is eleven Fox? What what is that MOS? Okay, now we didn't have have those other ones. We had eleven Charlie, eleven Bravo, and eleven Foxtrot. And eleven tr- Foxtrot was operations and intelligence, which in uh, special forces at that time would have been Fox. A, the assistant team leader. It would have been an E seven slot. But in Vietnam, uh, and only in Vietnam, they instituted the idea of the junior intel sergeant. So they were taking guys like me. I was a, a, a Humminbird sergeant at the time, a spe- Spec 5, as a, as a rigger. They took me as an E5, trained me in O&I, which gave me hard stripes, and uh, sent me to be Vietnam to be an assistant intel sergeant on an A-team was the idea behind the training. Didn't exist anywhere else in the world. Well, okay, so O&I, operations and intelligence? Yeah. Yep. So, and I understand now. I understand now. I mean, uh, I was associated with uh, Company B of the 19th out of uh, Columbus, a reserve mm-hmm. unit. And uh, I mean, it seems to me now, you guys, uh, they had a lot more warrant officers. We didn't have warrant officers back then, and I understand the intel slot now is handled by an, a warrant, and of course, the operations would be the team sergeant. Yep. So when I so for the structure for guys and gals who don't uh, know it now. Um, I just got, I'm still in the reserves as a sergeant major, so I'm an operations sergeant major. But when I went through training, I was an 18 Bravo or weapons sergeant. And, and then the, an operational detachment now is broken down into four MOSs plus, uh, which is a Bravo, weapons, Charlie, engineer, Delta, medic, and then 18 Echo communications. And mm-hmm. then you have the operations sergeant or the team sergeant. You have the team leader, which is the captain. And then you have the uh, 180 Alpha, which would be the warrant. And then additionally to that, the warrant would have underneath him an 18 Fox, who, who would be the uh, intelligence um, you know, NCO on the team that would okay. facilitate um, intelligence. Okay. Um, and, and anybody from Bravo, Charlie, Delta, or Echo could step up at some point and get the training to become a, a Fox. Sure. And then you know, be shadowed by the warrant officer who is – in charge of uh, driving intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you got to Special Forces training, uh, did they base your 11 Foxtrot MOS based on your rank because you were a, a more senior guy? Uh, no, well, that was part of it because they needed the, the junior intels. Uh, but, I mean, before I left Ord, uh, uh, Mike was trying to get me to be a medic and I just, you know, because there was the five MOSs, and and O and I wasn't even a consideration for an E five when I left Ord. That didn't even didn't even uh, come a, a, an issue until I got to Bragg, 
And so, uh, but he talked me into it, and I said, okay, I'll be a medic, and I'd go home, and I'd think about it. I said, no, I don't think I want to do that. So I got to brag. I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. And they just told me I was going through O&I training, and I said, oh, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) And and it was because of that initiation of that new E5 policy overseas in Nam. Uh, It was really good training. I mean, it was all CIA spycraft and that kind of stuff, so it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. So what what were the uh, breakdown of MOSs on a detachment at that at that time and during your era? Oh, well, ju- just pretty much like you said, you, you had the the two medics, senior junior. You had the, uh, of course, we called them demo, but the you know the engineers, you, senior and junior. You had two combo heavy weapons and light weapons, and then the o, two O and I guys, the team team sergeant and the, the uh, intel sergeant. And, and it was still a twelve. Was it a twelve-man ODA yeah. still, or was it? Yeah, and you'd have usually a captain as the the team leader, and a first or second lieutenant as the assistant team leader. Uh, of course, no, in I, Vietnam, teams were augmented depending on what was going. Sometimes, sometimes we had three or four officers hanging around the A team. Oh wow! Butter bars. Yeah. Oh yeah. So so back then, you could be uh, first lieutenant, second or first lieutenant, and be in in, in special forces. Yes. Or did you have to be? Okay. Oh, wow. And, and you got to also remember, too, that that uh, back then, Special Forces wasn't a branch. Uh, officers, if they stayed in SF too long, it it screwed up their career. You know, it was not good for an officer. So uh, it was the, the enlisted men that really were the, the core of Special Forces back then because they were the guys that hung around forever, where most officers would only stay for a while and get the hell out so they could get promoted. Okay, so when you when you uh, went to your group and got assigned, can you can you tell us um, by your recollection what what groups existed back then um, for the campaign for Vietnam during your era? Okay, the only, the only groups that fought in Vietnam were, uh, of course, the first and the seventh. Uh, first was out of Okinawa and Fort Lewis. Uh, they did TDY, and uh, the seventh out of Bragg did TDY. Uh, the other groups in existence were the 3rd and the 6th at Bragg. 3rd, 6th, the 7th was at Bragg. I feel like I'm missing one. But the 8th was down in Panama. And then the 19th and 20th were reserves back then. Oh, wow. So, so you were assigned to did – you, did you migrate into a reserve? Uh, you said B-19, right? Oh, no. That was – that's just recently – just a few years ago, I was in Ohio, and I, the Special Forces Association chapter, we met, and we had members from, from uh, Company B of the 19th. And so okay, we met, awesome. met their training area, and uh, you know, when we go in there and have our meetings, they, the guys would be in there. Uh, while I was there, they deployed to Korea for a while. Uh, so, uh, and and <clears throat> one of the warrant officers uh, uh, was uh, president of the chapter, and he and I talked a lot about... You know, they had their Halo team, their scuba team, things that we didn't, you know, didn't even think about back when I was in Special Forces. You might be Halo qualified, but there was no Halo team. So that's, yeah, that's a big difference because, well, let's talk about the modern era groups for for the listeners. So right now, um, you heard Mike Stahl's breakdown. So right now for, you know, the current Special Operations, there's uh, first group, which is out of Okinawa and Fort Lewis. There's third Special Forces group, which... Or first group handles PACOM, the PACOM theater. Mm-hmm. You have third special forces group out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. They handle CENTCOM, 
um, and, and they're aligned with Africa, realigned with Africa. You have 5th Special Forces Group, which is basically the Middle East, and they're out of Kentucky. You have 7th Special Forces Group out of Eglin Air Force Base, and they're aligned with uh, South, Southcom. And then you have um, a 10th Special Forces Group out of Fort Carson, Colorado, and they're aligned with the European Command and also uh, AFRICOM, the Africa Command. Um, yeah, I should also, that we had the tenth back when I was there too, of course. Oh yeah, I was going to say yeah, the tenth, yeah, the, the tenth one pulled out the tenth. I had orders to the tenth, and I should have remembered it. Um, that they also have, uh, and I was a team sergeant in one nineteen Charlie one nineteen in San Antonio, Texas, when I got off active duty a few years ago, and then uh, so they have nineteenth special forces, which I just re- align with like the west coast of the United States, and then they have twentieth special forces, which is mainly on the east coast. And they have different areas of operation depending on what state and which company you're in in, in that specific state. So when I was in Charlie 119, we were aligned with uh, uh, mainly uh, AFRICOM, or I'm sorry, we were mainly aligned with uh, PACOM, uh, Pacific Command, but we had taskings in Chile. Um, and, when I, and then when I transitioned to an operations sergeant major at Special Operations Detachment Africa in Austin, Texas, we were aligned with the AFRICOM theater. So... 19th and 20th still remain as reserve elements, but they're just tasked tasked all over the world. Um, now, when you when you went into special forces, the, what was your group that you went into? What what group were you first assigned to? I went right to the fifth, <laughs> straight to the fifth. I went, got my beret and went to Vietnam. Yeah, uh, and and let me mention too, we were talking about language and and how the the Department of Defense is sort of ahead. Uh, you remember the Six Days War when uh, Syria and Egypt attacked Israel? Oh yeah, yep. Okay, uh, I'd gone through, been through all the training. Uh, we were in a briefing for our our final FTX, a two week FTX, uh, and some sergeant comes walking into the old classroom, and he he says, he says, "Are there any Arabic linguists in here?" And I raised my hand. And I said, "Yes, sergeant." And he said, "Well, we'll be seeing you as soon as you get off your train, your, your FTX." Well, we went in the FTX, and while we were on the FTX, that's when the Six Days War happened. Our training exercise lasted longer than their war. Uh, so obviously, I've always been curious what the plan was going to be if I'd come off of that training, and the Israelis and the Arabs had still been into it, or if it's still been hot in that area. Uh, but. Oh, wow. uh, Obviously, I mean, that flared up and the Israelis took care of it, but it shows you how our military was sort of had their eye on that and were training linguists to speak Arabic before anything even started over there. Yeah, that's so was a uh, what how how important or how much of a priority do you think language was at the time on the on the operational detachments? Was it something that was thought about and they wanted to get guys realigned and and, okay we didn't have any vietnamese linguist at all uh uh, my second wife was a vietnam veteran she was a vietnamese linguist uh, working out of saigon and uh you know other people were learning uh vietnamese obviously uh chinese there was a lot of chinese being taught a good friend of mine was in the marine corps and uh, he was on a ship off the coast uh, monitoring Chinese transmissions. So there was, it wasn't only Vietnam, but uh, most of the linguists in special forces were, were geared towards uh, Europe, you know, German and Polish and that sort of thing, which, which was uh, my second language was German. When I came back from Vietnam the first time, uh, I went through German language training. 
Oh, that's awesome. Uh, like you mentioned, and I, I forgot to mention this about the Q course, um, language now is a huge priority for special yes. forces groups. And when I went through the Q course, you know, I'm a, I'm a half Korean guy who went through French training, who was assigned a third special forces group that, that's, that covered down on Africa. So I was like the French speaking Korean dude in Africa. So it was, it was interesting that, you know, they, they, you know, special forces is good at creating a model, but, but even now, you know, discussing with guys that are still in active duty, they haven't really looked at the recruit as, you know, Hey, what's your background? Can we, can we utilize your, language skills that you, you know, you're brought up with your culture and then align you into an ODA. It's just set up that way by design. You know, they, they put the slot into the position through the qualification course. And I know it's, I know it's changed, um, since I went through the qualification course, but when I went through, you know, besides SFAS or selection, uh, which is three weeks, you reported for the Q course and you went through small unit tactics, which, you know, at the time I was 11 Bravo an airborne ranger and, and, you know, we were kind of like leading the other MOSs that might've been soft skill MOSs, um, and, and teaching them the small unit tactics, which I believe was a, a month. Um, and then we went straight into, uh, uh, the MOS phase, which is, you know, Bravo, Charlie, Delta and Echo. Outside of that, we went to Robin Sage, which was the culmination exercise, you know, taking us into the, uh, into North Carolina, where we went to Pineland, uh, which is which is commonly known, which is like the fake, you know, uh, I resistance. Think the same trails. Yeah. So, oh, did you guys? So, did you guys? When you guys did the the eight week culmination at, with teams, did you guys have a Robin Sage? Uh, I, I don't remember that term, but what we did, we we uh, made a night jump into pineland or wherever the hell it was and we had to, we had to interact with the indige 82nd airborne was aggressors yep. and we didn't know if the the you know if the indige were going to be friendlies or not uh so it was it was a good exercise it was really an excellent training exercise and but it was only two weeks long yeah so our my robin sage was not long at, at not that not that long as well, but I remember it being. We did the same thing. I jumped in. I was a saw gunner. I jumped in a, a hundred pound ruck into the exercise, and then yeah. we we started training up an auxiliary element, and then doing four internal defense, and then you know, basically, you know, what you guys did in Vietnam, establishing you know guerrillas, you know, and right. leading them on combat operations, and then uh, outside of that, we went into our language phase, uh, which was four to six months, depending on the language. And they sent us straight to SEER school and SEER school uh, or SEER C survival, escape, resist, evade high risk course was uh-huh. for aviators and special forces. That was three weeks. And then once you got done with that, uh, you were, you know, you're given your green beret and then assigned, uh, to a, uh, a special forces group. All right. So Mike, I don't know you mentioned that, uh, you were given your green beret at, uh, a certain period of training and with the flat with the without the flash and at the end um you did you receive your flash when you got your assigned your group uh yeah that uh the first uh you know I, they gave us the beret we wore that just with the crest to show us the, the show we'd gotten through the first eight weeks and we were sf trainees and uh that's what we were wearing when we graduated and uh when we got our different groups and we went down and got our flashes sewn on uh Back then, of course, they had the maroon beret, but those weren't worn by uh, 
a special forces unit, so legs and, and non-SF people assigned to the various groups uh, to stay in uniform had to wear the beret, but they wore what, what we called a candy bar, the flash, just a little bar underneath the crest to show they weren't actually SF qualified because we didn't have the tab then. You know, it was oh, wow. You know, so, except in Vietnam, you will see guys in pictures wearing a, a green beret with a full fifth flash and no jump wings or anything because they're legs. Because for some reason in Vietnam, everybody assigned to an SF unit got to wear the green beret with a full flash. Oh, so that's that's mind boggling to me. I, just when you say that, it makes me cringe. <laughs> well, well, you know, I went I went down to uh, uh, the the fifth reunion a couple of years ago at Fort Campbell, and uh, I couldn't believe all the people with the maroon berets that were were assigned to the special forces unit. But at least they weren't wearing green berets. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, and the, the the tab obviously was the major. Just you know, you could obviously tell now with a tab assigned. Right. Uh, so that so have you ever experienced? You know, people, you know, I wouldn't say this is a stolen valor thing because technically they were Green Berets because they wore the Green Beret. But if were, were you guys calling yourselves Green Beret only if you were Special Forces qualified? Or was everybody a Green Beret because they, they had the, the, you know? Well, in the first place, uh, we, we really rejected even being called Green Berets. You know, at the time we were very touchy about saying, I wear a Green Beret. I'm not a Green Beret, you know? Oh, wow. uh, and, and uh, you know, it was sort of, Barry Sadler, oh, as a matter of fact, the uh, Ballad of the Green Beret came out while I was in language school for Arabic, so that kind of probably got me going too. But uh, uh, it was, you know, it was a big deal, and, and nobody, uh, I don't think, would, would, would have worn a beret without earning or having the right to it. But uh, in Vietnam, you didn't, you didn't call that distinction. You know, we were all just troops. We had a, we had a combo man on my A-team that wasn't SF qualified. A uh, hell of a good combo, man. And we went back to the States. He went through SF training. But, you know, what are you going to do? You get some guy that's a leg on your team. If he's a good team member, you pull him in. You know, you work with him. So uh, there wasn't a lot of petty shit about that, uh, if you know what I mean. No, no, that makes complete sense because I, I remember, you know, operating – like people think that, you know, you know, the alliance or the, you know, the association of the Green Beret um, – just like you said, it's it, you know for us it was a piece of headgear, and we we didn't typically want to be in our green berets, and not a, and uh, not a practical headgear either. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. It's not like you know we weren't like the French, you know, operating on operations with green berets. Yeah. We wore patrol. We were we wore PCs or patrol caps, right? And uh, you know, or boonie or boonie caps, and then huh. for 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 us downrange in Afghanistan or Iraq, we would typically same thing. We get attached, especially in com- communications. An RTO who would be assigned to 112 Signal, which supports special operations out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and those guys were the the best, uh, you know, you know RTOs really in the world because that's what they did specifically, and right. they would get us attached to our teams. And you know, I've been in hellacious gunfights where they were on the rooftops getting shot at in the open, you know, calling in airstrikes on bad on bad guys, you know, with their radios. So. Uh, yeah, same thing. We, I, I think it was a kind of like a petty thing um, uh, as well in, in, in my time period. Well, you know, and I think back too. you know, you hear these terms now, the, the FNGs and stuff like that, sort of speaking derogatory of the new guys. In special forces, 
in two years, I never ran into that attitude. I never heard anything like that till years later when I heard, started hearing people talk about REMPs and FNGs. Uh, special Forces, I mean, I was a new guy. I was green right out of training group. But when I got to my A-team, I was treated like a professional soldier. I was given a miss- mission, and I did my job. You know, that was what was expected. So, that's I mean that's that's exactly right. I mean that's that's exactly how it is today and I'm I'm glad to hear that in in, in your area is the same way. Uh, I think I don't know if you guys had the term the quiet professionals but that's I, I think that was one of the biggest um you know I don't know if it was uh the propaganda or the way they just inoculated us but that's something that it's was bred into special forces especially in training that we didn't brag about our uh-huh. jobs and and who we who we were. In fact, it was a complete opposite. We were, we were real humble, and all the operators that I, I worked with were humble in that sense. Well, yeah, that's uh, we didn't have the term back then, but it was the the mentality that was sort of permeated special forces. You know, you uh, it, you didn't strut your stuff. It was just you did your job. You were proud of what you did, but it was all very low key. And of course, everything we did was classified anyway, so you couldn't go back and. <laughs> and talk about it too much, uh, but it's. It, uh, well, I I, I got to tell you though, uh, <laughs> when I when I was shipping out to uh, uh, Vietnam the first time, I was in Seattle, in my greens, had my br- new green beret on my head. I was standing at a stoplight, waiting to cross the street, and this little old lady steps up next to me, and she she sort of touched my touched my sleeve a little bit, and she says, "Excuse me, sir." What country are you from? <laughs> because the Green Beret at that time, you know, in 67, wasn't seen. It wasn't as typical. It wasn't on TV, you know. And, and uh, so uh, civilians would actually take us for foreign soldiers. <laughs> That's funny. So, Mike, uh, you know, we, me and John have a new segment that we're going to do each episode. And... Uh, it's where we we share personal stories with our guests and, and talk about like their personal experiences, uh, especially veterans who've come from a, a background in fighting and combat operations. And I know you specifically have been through the Recondo School, and I, I've only seen documentaries at the Recondo School. And I remember going through Special Forces training, and it, and before I went to Special Forces training, it's actually one of the uh, one of the 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 lead-ins to me joining because seeing how you guys operated and how how that school was ran, where you you guys did the culmination exercise in Vietnam, uh, it it w- we were all awestruck as as candidates going through special forces training, hearing about those stories. Um, yeah, so pop, can you get shot back? Yeah, I mean, I, so so people know now today in the in the U.S. Army. Um, I mean, when I. I as petty as you know, when I went to Ranger School, you could dip Copenhagen or or, or Levi Garrett and, and chew tobacco. Now uh-huh. you can't even you can't even do that because of the sensitivity uh, with chewing tobacco. We didn't they didn't want to offend anybody that 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 did smoke or did that didn't uh, uh, chew tobacco. So you know, let alone making a school or training sequence where you culminated at war, there would be no way in hell that you'd ever do that. And <laughs> <laughs> and I told you know I told uh, John and Mike this offline that the closest that you'll ever get to that is that when you're in special forces is if you're doing foreign internal defense with your host nation 
guerrillas overseas, your indigenous element, you typically would culminate with a real live uh, operation or full mission profile um, and do a combat operation during the culmination, which was pretty typical, especially doing combat, what we call a CT fit or, or combat or countering terrorism for internal defense. So, Mike, let's hear your experiences with Ricondo. Number one, let's start out with what is that school? What did you have to go through? And then at the culmination exercise, what, what did that involve? Okay, well, uh, of course, everybody went down there already had all their special forces training. Uh, the one zero school was two weeks long and focused on what we needed to do to do our job. Uh, things like repelling. Uh, that wasn't normal training for special forces, so that's where I learned to repel. Uh, you know, started out with the, uh, um, what do you call it when you're coming down the, the wall? Uh, not the free repel, which is a lot more fun, you know. And and, and it's like that was a, we ended up with a 100-foot repel of a, a helicopter, of course, a Huey to, to finish that up. Uh, we got intensive medical training because when you when we went across the fence, we weren't going to have a medic with us or or medical facility, so we had to be able to start blood expanders at night, uh, that sort of thing. So pretty heavy on on the uh, combat medic stuff re- refresher. Uh, let's see what else would there have been because it was only two weeks long, but it, like I say it was uh, we did a lot of patrolling. Uh, the immediate action, you know, immediate reaction drills. Uh, obviously, when you're patrolling, sometimes you you know you might take uh, 30 minutes to move 10 yards. So uh, you've got to practice that kind of stuff. Uh, it was all just focused on skills that we were going to need for a small team recon, uh, which meant that that the Americans were going to have to handle everything. Uh, that pretty much covers it. I mean, it wasn't uh, there wasn't anything dramatic about it. Uh, now, what about the culmination? That did did you guys finish with a culmination in combat? Uh, no, no, we 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 did patrols out of Longthon. We were we weren't that far from Saigon. Uh, it was not secured areas where we did our patrols, and and they stressed uh, uh, <laughs> they stressed a lot that we weren't back at Bragg that. Like I said, the pop-up targets might shoot back. So uh, that put a little extra uh, edge on it. But there were no long operations. They were just uh, just short patrols out of Longthon, out of the camp, uh, to you know, to kind of work our skills in and, and practice the, the recon we'd be doing in, in Laos or Cambodia. So, oh, that's so, cool. so, Mike, for anyone, any American who went to that school, were they to be slotted as a 1-0 or a team leader? No, Mac V. Sog, or that was just to learn those hard skills. Uh, it was any any American that was going to go to a recon team went through the one zero school. Whether you're going to be a one one, because when, when I when I got back to Da Nang, I became the the assistant team leader, the one one on Michigan, uh, and that was very unusual. Uh, earlier in the war, you had to run a lot of missions as a one one before you could even think of being a one zero. Uh, I ran one mission as a one one, my one zero de roast, and I was the team leader. Uh, and I didn't, and I never had a real American team. Most of my my Americans were just assigned sort of, sort of uh, ad hoc. All right, so Mike, so this was a course that was ran out of Vietnam, and 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 what was the duration? Was this was this Recondo school ran through the duration of the war? 
as far as I know, now there were other Recondo schools, uh, B-52 Delta, they had a Recondo school in the Triang right up the road from the 5th Group headquarters, and that's where B-52 Delta was headquartered. So, uh, again, because of the compartmentalization, uh, different things going on in different places, you know, I can only really t- relate to what I went through. And, uh, but I do know that, uh, you know, one zero school was, went on for quite a while. And before I could actually get into recon, I had to go through that training. So, so, bef- oh, okay. So there was a, this was a prerequisite to get into the, a, a reconnaissance element. Yes. Oh wow! I didn't I didn't know that. So it, it's it's interesting because I I know so special forces teams now for for guys and gals who don't know you know we're we're broken down like Mike said they weren't broken down where they had Halo schools and or, or Halo teams and scuba teams now a special forces company which has six operational detachments and one uh, B team or um, Bravo detachment are organized to where they have specialties per team and. Uh, typically, the Halo team, which is usually the four or the the fourth team in the company, is aligned with the reconnaissance mission or the you know sniper slash reconnaissance mission because of their their infiltration techniques, which would be military freefall. And then you had other specialty teams like I was I started out on a mountain team and then went into the commanders and extremist forces as an assaulter and then a, a sniper team uh, or sniper slash reconnaissance team. So you had mountain teams, you had direct action teams, you had mobility teams, uh, you had halo and scuba teams, and you also had um, uh, what was called ruck teams that were just basically, you know, you, know, you lived out of your ruck and you, it would be the equivalent of um, uh, what's called Team Merrill, which is a, a, a ranger regiment term where you just lived out of your ruck and did uh, movements to contact. Mike, Mike, when you were in Vietnam um, – Let's hear let's hear a war story because I don't I, I'm not sure if you if you guys talked about this last time uh, with John, but uh, can you tell us a war story from your Mac, uh, Mac v Sog days uh, that that just stand that might stand out to you, um, you know, three to five minutes? Uh, yeah, uh, how about how about the uh, the fr- the first patrol I did with when I took over RT Michigan? Uh, yep. They sent uh, you know they gave me the the team my uh my one one zero d roast and i had to you know i hadn't worked with them at all i got shot off an lz that's all they knew about me uh so uh you know we did some training back at ccn around uh, marble mountain and then they sent us out to leghorn which is a radio relay site uh right about on the border with uh, south vietnam cambodia and laos it was right in that area of course the maps were bad so we don't know exactly where it was <laughs> and, uh, you know, they sent me out there with the team, and uh, uh, I can't remember who the Americans, uh, the other Americans with me now, because, uh, like I said, they, they, they switched out a lot on me. I didn't have a regular 1-1 uh, one, one and 1-2. One, so we get out there on this on this really high peak, and it was just totally socked in the next morning when after uh, after we got up. And the radio relay officer, the guy that was the old IC up there, told called me and he said he wanted me to take my team out and do a security sweep around the perimeter and i respectfully declined to do that which he didn't understand because uh, he was he wasn't really part of the sog element he didn't understand that as a team leader that i could i could opt in or opt out of anything and my reasoning was to start with we were socked in and a recon team is 
is nothing without air support. If we got out there and got in trouble and we couldn't get any kind of air support, it could have lost the team. My other logic was that uh, as, unus- as unlikely as it was for us to be attacked on this high peak, it would be better to keep all the force inside, especially with it being socked in. Uh, so this other young one, Zero, that was out there with us, he jumped up and he volunteered to take his team out. I said, go ahead, brother. So uh, they left in the morning. I guess it was uh, about three hours later, they came up on the radio screaming and hollering. They'd been hit by rocket fire. They'd been ambushed. And uh, they had injuries. They had wounded. And they didn't, they didn't know what was going on. They were all disoriented. So naturally, now it became imperative. I mean, it was no longer optional. I had to go and help these guys. So I t- took my team out. And to this day, I don't know how we found them. Uh, I do remember going over underbrush that was so thick that we must have been 20 to 25 feet off the ground. You could see down through the the branches in the jungle. If one of us had ever dropped down through there, I don't think we'd ever got out. Uh, As we started getting close to where we thought this team had been ambushed, I took over the point because I didn't want my mountain yard up front uh, walking into a a fresh ambush site and having him get get in uh, greased by the other team so i took point uh as we got in real close to the area i wasn't smelling cordite i was smelling uh uh, ozone and uh we got there and one of the guys was still up in a tree he had a broken leg and what we actually determined was that this team had been struck by lightning (laughs) they had not been ambushed uh we got a ch-46 in the old uh what was that? The Sea King, I think it was. Uh, we got one little hole over us, and they were able to drop a string down, and we got the guy out with the uh, broken leg. Uh, but we uh, we had we had to hump it back the next day, uh, cold and wet and miserable, and thinking we were going to make any enemy contact, and the only enemy was Mother Nature throwing lightning bolts at the team. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> and and, and, and I, I have done talks with uh, high school students, history classes, American history and stuff. And, and one of the things they seem to be the most interested in is stories like that. They want to know about the snakes and the tigers. Uh, you know, I guess they see all the, the bombs and bullets on, in their call of duty or whatever. And, and they're really interested in the, the, the subtler stories about combat. Oh, that's all. So that was your first operation with rec- with your record team? Yeah, that was my first time as the one zero. Like I said, the other time I hopped on the helicopter, hopped off the helicopter as a one one, and Slicks came right back in and took us out again. So, oh wow, wow, that's an awesome story. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Mike. That's great. Sure. Yeah, that that's awesome to hear, and it's it's always interesting to hear these stories, these war stories from wars prior. And also to hear the the contrast of Green Berets from the Vietnam era to Green Berets now, it's always interesting. So, uh, Mike, can you drop your your website handle for anyone who wants to check out your website? Sure. Just go to www.trickymisfit.com, T-R-I-C-K-Y-M-I-S-F-I-T, Tricky Misfit. And that's also uh, my handle on Facebook, too. Okay, yeah, so you can check Mike out, Facebook, website, and, you know, Mike is going to be on for future episodes, and we're going to discuss a bunch of different topics. So, Mike, as always, I appreciate uh, you coming on and, and sharing some of your story. 
Thanks, John. I really enjoyed it, and it was nice meeting you finally, Mike. Yeah, th- thanks for being on. I pr- appreciate your service, and thank you for everything you've done. Yeah, I always enjoy having Mike on. You know, it's, it's a very interesting perspective, uh, you know, given his experience and um, all of the things that he's done and, and went through. So, Mike, I, I know a lot of people hit you up specifically about what exactly is team life inside Special Forces like, and people kind of have... I guess people kind of make up, make it up as they go along if they have no knowledge of it and they're and they're thinking about it. So can you kind of just clarify that for for those who are interested? I recently did a consultation with this this uh, gentleman from the East Coast who's who's about to go in on an eighteen X ray program, and we were we were talking, and it, and it, one of the questions he had during the consultation was, "Hey, how how was actual team life? Like, what does it involve?" Because one of his wife's concern was, you know, hey, is this is are you going to be gone all the time? Are you going to be um, on secret missions? And I'm not going to be able to talk to you. Or you know, do you do you get to come home? And it occurred to me that you know we haven't really talked about it, and it's not really talked about a lot. And and really, the only referral to special operations is books, TV, media, uh, movies. So, you know, t- talking about team life specifically, team life is it's really in special forces uh, at nine to five, you know, it, when you, you, you know, I describe it as a uh, red, amber, green cycles, it, it's all backwards planned off your actual rotation. So you have, you know, obviously you have a combat rotation or you'll have a foreign internal defense or otherwise known as a J set um, operation that you might be going on, but everything's backwards planned off of that, that, you know, that's the green phase. And then you have the amber, which is the train up phase. And then you have the red phase, which, you know, comes after the, deto- the the deployment phase, which is, uh, you know, a down cycle. During the down cycle, you know, when I was in the SIF or when I was uh, uh, on, a, on a mountain team and 3rd Special Forces group, it, it all remains pretty much uh, the same. You know, you, you, you get up, you, you go to work, you know, that you go do team PT typically or you do PT on your own and or physical training on your own. And then after you're done – you do the day day's task, and typically the team sergeant lays out uh, the weekly schedule, the the uh, monthly schedule, so you know in advance exactly what you're doing. A, a day in the life of a Green Beret, you're you're either shooting, um, you're doing cross training, you're doing you're going TDY, which means you're traveling to some kind of training, which specifically could be, you know, a race school, uh, driver's training, a shooting school. Uh, a free, a specialized free fall school. You know, I've been all over the United States to civilian schools, which is a large portion of special forces training. Cause, uh, we like to resource, you know, other guys who are subject matter experts in their specific field, which makes us better operators or, or better green berets, um, you know, in the long run. So yeah, you come home, it's a nine to five, you know, you, you go to work, you, you do your job and then you come home at night. There's, there's not really any kinds of any periods of, of time that are actually remember not being able to come home or, or not being in contact with loved ones while I was away. You know, and I reflected, um, on a, a war story of mine, uh, from Iraq where I was in, you know, solder city in the middle of a sniper stay behind where we occupy a house and, and hide and, and hunt bad guys. But we, you know, I'm laid up in this house and I got a Nokia cell phone and I'm texting, uh, back home. You know, so 
you're never really out of out of touch and with technology today you're you're always going to be in contact now there are those rare occasions in special forces where you you might get isolated and you and you might get uh compartmentalized for classified operations and that happens but but for the most part it's just it's like any other job and i don't you know i don't want to downplay it it's not like any other job because you're getting paid to work out and shoot and jump out of airplanes um but it it's not as hollywood as hollywood portrays it uh the other uh, the other question was you know how how are specifically special forces army special forces with families and that kind of structure and i have a kind of a philosophy on it but i believe that uh, really the more structured and the more uh, stable your life situation is your personal life situation the better operator you could be i mean the the I don't want to say the worst team guys because I've never had really, you know, shitbag team guys. But the 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 team guys that I have had who have had issues were typically single guys who didn't have an emotional, um, really stable um, situation that they could rely on, and so they were running around. They were you know they were hungover. Or they had just personal issues all the time. But the guys who had families and uh, the guys who had uh, stable girlfriends and fiancés and stable personal situations were the best operators uh, that, that I've had. And, you know, mentoring my special forces guys as a team sergeant, that was an important portion of being a good leader for me was, you know, hey, I, I, I ensured with my uh, captain, with my team leader, that we made sure our guys were taken care of, that they were uh, healthy at home was the number one priority because if they weren't healthy at home, didn't have a stable uh, personal life, then they were uh, failing as an operator because they were making mistakes or thinking about other things, which would obviously debilitate the um, specific uh, peak performances of, of a team operating together downrange. So we didn't want to risk that. So special forces is good with families and it's good um, for marriages and, and it could be a, a great thing. It, you could have a lot of balance as long as you're open, overt about the conversation. You have open communication with your family. Uh, and and the best operators in the world that I've seen operate at the highest levels have had some of the best stable personal lives uh, You know, with a wife at home uh, holding down the, uh, the home front while they're out doing operations. So I would encourage those that you know, are on the fence because of it, you know, different operational units – operate in different ways. I'm speaking specifically about U.S. Army Special Forces, but those who are on the fence about it because they think that um, it might destroy their, pers- their personal or their, uh, their family life, I-, I think it's the complete opposite. I think uh, Special Forces is pretty good at supporting uh, the families and the, the family readiness group uh, personnel that are in charge of that are pretty good with military families and military spouses and taking care of them while we're deployed. So it's, it's one big family. Yeah, that, that's awesome to hear, and um, I'm sure that will answer a lot of questions that guys may have who are considering going in. So that was a great, great piece of advice. Okay, so w- with that being said, we're going to close it out. Um, me and Mike have both created second uh, secondary Instagram profiles. So, Mike, Mike, what's the name of your your new Instagram account? It's uh, at Phil Craft Survival 
And then, you know, obviously my, my, my IG Instagram handle was at uh, soft survivor, S O F survivor. Okay. So check out Mike on his new Instagram account. My secondary account is global recon Inc. Global recon underscore Inc. Um, you know, be sure to give it a follow. My main Instagram account is IG Recon. Uh, my website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook is FB Recon. And my Twitter is also IG Recon. Mike's website is fieldcraftsurvival.com. His Facebook is Fieldcraft LLC. And his Twitter is IG Soft Survivor. And uh, if you have any questions about anything you heard on the show, you can send an email to podcast at globalrecon.net. And either myself or Mike will respond to you guys uh, in a timely fashion. And we respond on on every social media platform. So you can just hit us up and uh, we'll get back to you. So we'll see you guys in a few few days with another great episode. Peace.